Hello, Beat Check listeners. I'm Gosia Wozniacka, and I'm the environmental justice reporter at The Oregonian. Today, I'm with Ryan Reed. He's a wildland firefighter with the U.S. Forest Service and a graduate of the University of Oregon. He is also a member of the Karuk, Kupa, and Yurok tribes. As an indigenous person, he co-founded and leads the Fire Generation Collaborative, an organization that supports young firefighters and others in the fire community who are proactively working with fire, and they're using fire to protect rural communities, restore ecosystems, and preserve vulnerable species. And if this sounds unusual to you, please keep listening. Today, we're gonna to be talking about the Northwest Forest Plan, which is a forest management plan, and also what it means to be an indigenous fire practitioner and how firefighters can use fire to reduce future catastrophic wildfires. Welcome to the show, Ryan. Thanks for taking the time to speak with me. Absolutely, Gosha. I appreciate the, um, the uh, invitation and happy to be here. Of course. So for starters, I just want to give our listeners a little overview of what this uh, Northwest Forest Plan is, uh, because it went into effect nearly 30 years ago in 1994, which is a a long time. I was just a kid Mm -hmm. back then. Um, So the Northwest Forest Plan was born out of these legal battles over the decline of the northern spotted owl. I'm sure all of our listeners have heard about that bird. Um, Coho salmon and other uh, wildlife dependent on old growth forests. And 30 years ago, those species were disappearing. And that's because the forests were being clear cut for timber at a maddening pace. And they were wiping out the habitat of the birds and the fish. So uh, the Northwest Forest Plan basically limited logging and old growth reserves and ended the the so-called timber wars. Um, Though I should note that it didn't end all timber harvests on public land. And we might get to that later on. Um, So why are we talking about this plan today? Uh, because the U.S. uh, Forest Service is developing an updated version of this plan. Uh, And that's because 30 years ago, the plan omitted topics such as climate change, wildfire, and indigenous land stewardship. And those are are all obviously very important topics today. And so this plan has to be modernized. And the new plan is going to be pretty important. It's going to guide forest management for the next century in 17 national forests in Oregon, Washington, and California. So hugely important in our region. And Ryan, uh, you're going to have a front seat uh, for this plan update. Uh, Ryan is a member of the Federal Advisory Committee that's helping to recommend updates to this plan. Uh, The committee just met in Portland earlier this month, um, and Ryan is the public representative on the committee. He was selected from a national pool of hundreds of applicants. uh, And at 23, he's the committee's youngest member. So... um, Pretty exciting. Uh, Ryan, uh, let's dive in and talk about why this plan is important to everybody in Oregon and other parts of the region. And uh, let's just start with the bottom line. Like, why should people who live in cities or suburbs care about trees and forests? Like, what do what do trees and forests mean to humans? Yeah, absolutely. That's, I think that's the first important but simple question, right? Why, why should we care about this? You know, and I... I think that's a question that a lot of people aren't asked every day of their lives, especially when you live in an urban, um, as I've, you know, the urban uh, interface, right? And so I think just asking those questions will allow folks to, to critically think about their life a little bit and, and how it intertwines and intersects with our natural, you know, our quote unquote natural environment around us, right? And so. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> 
you know, and I think that the importance of forest, you can, you can name endless ones, right? Whether it's carbon um, sequestration, whether it's uh, preservation of, you know, landscapes in which you, you can use for recreation and, and you know, feeling like you're, you're being grounded in this world, you know, all these different from, from minor to extreme and major uh, reasons. But I think it really comes down to is why does it matter to you? You know, how do you how do you take a sense of responsibility of yourself and how you really fit in this world? Right. And so that's one of the questions I grew up being asked is like, where do you fit and what's your role in this life? Right. And I think that living in this living in rather, you know, serve cities or rather defined as urban areas, we kind of get into this uh, alienation from our natural environment. And so, and I can't speak too much to that, just given that I didn't grow up in the city and I'm, I'm currently in the city right now, but this is a very small portion of my life. But just under the little experience I've had in the city, there's, it's easy to get caught up in not, you know, not circling around and, and grounding yourself in, in natural environments and, and the issues that pertain to these different landscapes across, you know, I guess specifically as we're talking about the Northwest Forest Plan. And so I would say that just essentially just how I think it really frames of how does it, what does it mean to you? And I think that whatever answer it might be, that's what is your role and responsibility of understanding the issues and, and, and solutions that pertain to that answer. Mm-hmm. I think that's a great way of seeing it. Um, and like you said, I mean, forests around us, uh, you know, even if we live in cities and suburbs, they're all around us. Uh, right. You know, they span pretty much the whole state and the whole region. So it's just that they're easy to ignore because maybe they're not in our backyard. But like you Absolutely. said, everybody has a has a reason to be connected to them. Um, and so and, and, it, and it could be a negative reason. Right. So, you know, a big portion of this amendment process with the northwest forest plan is wildfires right and so you know in extreme cases if that's what you have to care about then that's what you should care about you know and so it's just unfortunate that there's certain issues in which the reasons why we care about certain things rather than you know the positive the the silver lining of things such as enjoying the environment right so um you know i think those are all relevant and and not to be um you know, ignored is the issues in which we really need to to hone in on. Yeah, absolutely. Um, Well, let's talk a little bit about your background. Um, You're an indigenous person, and so you have kind of a unique Mm -hmm. uh, relationship with the forest uh, and the land. Uh, Can you tell us a little bit about your background, uh, where you come from, and what trees and forests mean to you and your community? Absolutely. Um, So I'm I'm Kadu Koop on Yurok, and so I grew up on Manchester Territory, um, in the mid Klamath, uh, Klamath River Basin. And I grew up kind of fighting for my rights as indigenous people. You know, I, I grew up as a young and uh, going to different rallies, different <clears throat> uh, protests uh, to take the dams out in, in our river, in our system. And, you know, those are one of my earliest memories alongside of, of Dipnet and at the Ishipishi Falls down there at Kudumin. And, you know, those different memories is, is, is the earliest as they are. Um, they have a profound impact on me, not just in uh, a sense of place in which I had a great time and had these positive, positive memories, but over time of, of still being connected to those practices, there is uh, an evident 
loss that has been illustrated over time. And and I, again, as you mentioned, I'm not very old. And so when I'm able to see a, a catastrophic transformation in how we're able to carry ourselves, whether it's with, as a community or as people who who depend on salmon as as a food source and and it really connects us to our practice and culture you know when that starts to slowly disappear you know you kind of get this sense of urgency in and and so again kind of tying back to the different things you know my community depends on salmon it depends on our cultural practice in order in order to persist uh, I, as many as other folks can can relate to say that we're a land-based religion and so we can't practice our religion anywhere else in the world and so if our practices and the landscape and everything else that is influenced and, and factors on it if it disappears then so do we and and so there's a sense of importance of these issues like the northwest forest plan of climate change you know and so it's it's innate it's 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 by default because of the frontline community in which we are right and so um that's kind of what i grew up with i kind of grew up with that atmosphere of knowing that nothing's going to be handed to me because i'm an indigenous person but also because if the things that we value as 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 people who live on the klamath it's very dependent on which the rest of the world is, has a different perspective on things mm. and and now we're seeing it amongst everything right it's not just the salmon Right. It's 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 the catastrophic wildfires that are raising communities and threatening lives of not only firefighters, but other communities as well. You know, so it's very intense. And I kind of grew up in that intense environment. And now that the world is starting to see that intensity of catastrophic wildfires and climate change, now there is a sense of unprecedented vehicle to in order to establish indigenous leadership again. How do we kind of get back in the roles of being managers and stewards of the landscape? And so that's that's essentially why I'm here. That's kind of why I talk about the things that I talk about, and it really influences me as an indigenous person. Um, it's a part of my identity, right? So all the, my community, the things in which we value, and the things that really are challengers of the things that we value. That's kind of why I'm here, and mm -hmm. and that's what why it's so significant for me you know, essentially in short terms, protecting the forest and, and the streams and the ecosystems, right? Because it has everything to do with me. And I think that's one of the things, kind of back to your first question of why it's important to, to, to take to care of it, because we, we as humans have responsibility to the landscape. Mm -hmm. And for a long period of time, we've never, we've, we've uh, collectively have had a disconnect of the re reciprocal relationship with the landscape we've been taking 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 mm -hmm. and now we're starting to feel the issues we're starting to have to deal with them and my generation is the ones gonna have to take that leadership on yeah yeah it's catching up with us exactly mm -hmm. and like you said it's the the you've uh felt the loss of of many of those uh things on the landscape uh, profoundly because your community is so tied um, to the landscape, the salmon, the trees. Right. Yeah. Um, so let's talk ab about the significance uh, of the Northwest Forest Plan. So there's obviously multiple groups that are involved in updating this plan. Um, mm -hmm. The timber industry is very much involved and, you know, they want to cut more trees and make sure logging isn't restricted. Uh, environmental groups uh, want to protect uh, the old trees, they kind of want to leave the forest 
you know, intact and virtually untouched. And your perspective as an indigenous person is sort of somewhere in between, but really very different from those two perspectives. Um, mm -hmm. Can you talk a little bit about um, your take on the plan and 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 why it's important to you? Why you you became part of this committee? What you're hoping to accomplish? Right. <clears throat> you know, as as I mentioned, the, the a, a couple reasons of why I'm here. But I think collectively that it's more so what's that it's less of what's at stake, but what is more of an opportunity. And I think that's my perspective of being on this committee is what can we make of this opportunity of this update of the plan? And I there's a you know, the thing about our group collectively is that we're you know, we kinda have a really good understanding in this point in time of what is lacking in the landscape, right? And that is one of those is indigenous management and leadership. And I think that, you know, there's a lot more that entails with that. There's a lot more details and, and work that is implied that we still have yet to do work on. But I think that's my perspective as well is that we're in this issues because of the lack of indigenous manage management as well mm -hmm. as lack of cultural fire and, and proactive management fire. And so, you know, when we're thinking about what is at stake, I think it's more of what's the opportunity for cultural fire and indigenous management to be reintroduced to the landscape, which is so near, so, so definitely needed um, mm -hmm. in the issues in which we're, we're, we're having to deal with right now. Got um, it. Can, yeah. can I just ask you to give a very brief description of what indigenous management means to you? We'll go back to it in detail, Absolutely. but just so people know what we're talking about. Yeah, so specifically as in this topic, you know, I, you hear me say cultural fire versus prescribed fire. And so the, the significance about that, uh, which will really pertain to the broader question, is that prescribed fire has very Western objectives, right? Whether it's fuel reduction, um, and I guess that that's the main priority is fuel reduction, right? And getting fire back to the landscape. But for cultural fire, there's significant objectives that are very intricate, that are very specific to any given area. So, you know, we have different areas in which we depend on, whether it's basketry, whether it's hunting, whatever it might be. And so those are those cultural burns are tied in for that specific purpose, which has an uh, interdisciplinary impact meaning it can impact the terrestrial wildlife. It can impact certain plants on which we're prioritizing. It can impact uh, the safety of our communities, right? And so for us, it's it's the cultural values that we depend on, whether it's it's medicines, whether it's food, um, or it's whether it's just overall stewardship. You know, we have specific objectives that pertain to us as a culture. Mm. Whereas, you know, a lot of prescribed fire is kind of a little bit more surface level. Right. Mm -hmm. And so co collectively to indigenous management is that it pertains to the given ecosystem in which it, it's being conducted. Whereas if we look broadly or, or federal federal management or mismanagement, however you want to describe it, over the past hundred plus years, it's been a, a blanket approach. Right. It's a one size fit all. Whereas a lot of indigenous folks have a good understanding and idea of what the landscape needs. And mm -hmm. that's what we're going to that's what we're going to cater to is the needs of the landscape. Yeah. And so that's kind of the important as we move in this conversation to, to, mm -hmm. to understand the differentiation, even though they're both um, proactive and they're really good forms of management. 
Mm. It sounds like the uh, U.S. Forest Service approach is really aimed at reducing fuels and preventing uh, wildfires in that way, while the indigenous uh, land stewardship and the cultural use of fire uh, is has to do really with the whole landscape. It's a lot more holistic. Um, it doesn't just look at uh, you know preventing fires, but it's also looking mm-hmm. at basically regenerating plants, uh, helping animals uh, thrive on the landscape, sort of the whole, um, you know, really looks at the whole landscape as opposed to just one aspect of it, uh, you know, preventing catastrophic fires. So I think that's a great description. Thank you. Um, You know, when I looked at the list of this committee that's working to uh, update you know, uh, the plan and and give recommendations to the U.S. Forest Service, I was struck that there was uh, five uh, indigenous uh, people on the committee, uh, I believe, uh, out of 20 uh, members. uh, And that's a a lot. Uh, And I'm wondering what it means to you as an indigenous person to be included on this committee. Um, You know, do, do you feel like this is a step in the right direction from an agency that historically has really not been very inclusive, you know, hasn't really engaged uh, Mm -hmm. Native uh, Indigenous people in conversation. Absolutely. And I think that I want to say that there's four Indigenous people on the committee. Um, So I want to know that I think that uh, there might be someone else who represents another government, the tribal government. Um, I think that it is steps in the right direction. I really do, given the last plan and, and what followed neglected tribal government tribal people collectively you know and so i think that's one of the big priorities for us this time around but i think it's also important to not be satisfied with that right so there's been often the conversation or narrative that there you have that box now that's been scripted and now you gotta check it and that's it and i think it's significant to differentiate the, the the sense of kind of doing your due diligence and making a real actual effort in implementing and including and, and at, at some points taking the back seat in order for indigenous leadership to do what is necessary and so <clears throat> i think that's one of the important notes is that what does it mean for indigenous include inclusion within this process and it's not just consultation it's not just speaking with tribes but it's a an, an, how can we give autonomy, how can we give rights back to indigenous people um, as we've been here since time of memorial? Got it. Got it. Um, well, I hope the U.S. Forest Service follows through with uh, their efforts. Um, so let's talk about um, the cultural use of fire and what it means exactly. Um, you know, what does it mean to be an indigenous fire practitioner? Um, can you talk about how your tribe has historically worked with fire and also how those uh, practices were curtailed by the U.S. government? Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Um, indigenous, being an indigenous fire practitioner has a complex interaction, especially in, in today's society with the different policies and restrictions, right? So I think how I view indigenous practitionership is is not in solely based on the fact of going out in the landscape and putting fire to land, putting fire down. Although that is significant and, and being a part of that is so rejuvenating and is 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 a form of ceremony. Mm-hmm. But 
I think in today's complexity, when it comes to fire, whether it's fear, whether it's complex, the importance of the impacts on it, whatever it might be, you know, I feel like that being a practitioner is significant and, and other folks have different approaches to it. And it's important to, to kind of lean on, on your skills, on your expertise and run with that in order to make more space to be, to, <clears throat> to be able to go to that, you know, the gen generic definition of going out and putting fire in the landscape again, right? So I think that's overall the ov overall mission, but it's so complex and restricted now that that's not as clear cut and dry, right? So mm -hmm. how um, was it? My, how was it in the past? How did your tribe, you know, right. before the government stopped these practices, <laughs> how did your tribes use these uh, the the practice? Yeah. So again, you know, I think one of the importance is to know that we lived in a matriarch society. And so our leaders were our elders, our elder women telling, telling the, everyone else within the given village, given tribe, however you want to phrase it, of what to do and when, you mm -hmm. know. And so one of the important notes, one of the things I want to emphasize is that we actually burn during the summers hmm. um, in, in order to preserve high temperatures uh, high droughts, uh, uh, you know, events, whatever it might be, but also that's when you're going to be able to get the most consumption, right? Mm -hmm. So you're going to be able to get the cleanest burns in the landscape. And it wasn't an issue because if you burn so often, then you wouldn't have fuel buildup as often. And so that's one of the significant portions that we never, we didn't always burn during the area, the times in which we're having to burn now because of the fires, 100 years of plus years of fire suppression and mismanagement. And so I think that's one of the things in which we want to kind of keep in mind is that we're in a different era now when it comes to management. We don't, right. we can't just go and put fire in the landscape. That's right. unsafe. That's un, unwitty. And I think a lot of even fire indigenous fire practitioners understand that, right? Mm. Because it's contradicting of what our goal is. And so that is one of the things that is kind of misguided, misleaded within other management. Like, well, all right, we can't just go and put landscape on, you know, put, put fire down. It's like, yes. That's very true, but there is a huge there's a huge differentiation of approach of what we're doing and for and, and who is in leadership in that moment. And so I guess that's one of the things I want to emphasize of how my tribe historically worked with fire and, and we respect it as it's is as, as its separate entity. It's the giver and taker of life, which is not many things in this world has that skill set that has the attributes. Mm -hmm. And so that it, we need to respect it. And I think I want to note, too, is that the U.S. government just didn't curtail our indigenous management practices. Those are actually very violent, a very intentional cult form of culture erasure and mm. cultural genocide. Mm. And oftentimes it was like, OK, indigenous people used to burn. Now we don't. Well, actually, my ancestors were were murdered. We were culturally we were very strategically put in the periphery of society and, and demonized and criminalized for it. And in and, and very similar ways, we're in the same way now, mm. right? We're considered arsonists if we if we try to put fire back in the landscape, which we know is productive and it's going to do well. Mm. Um, yeah, so I'll, I'll stop there. But I think it's important to know that as what it means to me and as an Indigenous person, as well as other people, is that we kind of have this history which glooms over us, mm -hmm. but not too many people want to acknowledge that that heavy presence of the colonial past and which influences where everybody's at today yeah absolutely um just for context uh how many years did your 
society uh, practice these uh, uh, fire, uh, cultural fire practices before they were stopped? Um, you know, I can't speak very t- too well to that historical component. I know that there's a lot of uh, information I've gathered over the years that, you know, we were contacted re- relatively late in the mid 1800s. And so, and then there's other um, policies and, and quotes from Forest Service uh, leadership about, um, you know, criminalizing indigenous people for putting fire in the landscape. Um, and that was by early 1900s. Um, yeah, yeah. So a really long time. And so, you know, there's many generations um, lost of what of what it truly looks like, of what indigenous management looks like. And so yeah. I think that's one of the things we're trying to get back to. Yeah. And I should add that yours isn't the only tribe that uses fire. Uh, there's other tribes in the U.S. that do this as well. Absolutely. So this is not a... Mm-hmm. Um, this is not a an, an un, this wasn't an uncommon practice uh, in right. the past uh, before the right. U.S. government stepped in and uh, uh, basically put a stop to it in many places. So, yep, You're um, right there. Can you talk a little bit about how you and your tribe uh, work with fire today, uh, given the constraints of modern mm-hmm. American society and the fact that mm-hmm. uh, most people are afraid of fire? You know, we've, we're taught from early on that fire is a terrible thing, that we need to fight it, get rid of it, you know, never start it. Um, you know, we're, we're, we're afraid of it, I think, and uh, whether we live in a city or in the country. And so how do you... How do you practice in the middle of that fear? Um, you know, how do you move forward with your cultural practices? Yeah, um, I think I live in a very, um, I live in, I come from a community who is very ambitious about getting our fire practices reestablished. And I think that has a lot to do with what we're able to accomplish um, in addition to the different policies in which restrict us, right? And so, um, as the Kudu tribe, which I'm primarily talk about, or where I I'm, I'm derive a lot of my knowledge and, and perspective from, um, we are landless, and so we don't have a reservation in, in which we can mm-hmm. practice a lot of these different management strategies, and so a lot of it calls for co-stewardship and, and collaboration with with the U.S. Forest Service, with other nonprofit organizations who have a little bit who can help contribute capacity. And so uh, overall, it, it's a lot of collaboration that is necessary. And I think that's what's unique about our community is that it's not just natives versus non-natives, mm-hmm. right? It, it's a it's kind of a more modern a more modern approach of what it takes in order to take care of the landscape around us, right? And that doesn't neglect that indigenous leadership and. and our matriarch society needs to has a, a significant place because it does, um, but it's just saying that we can live a life where there's many different backgrounds with different identities who can come together and and take care of the landscape. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and I think more specifically is that we have a limitation on when and how often we can burn, but I think our tribe, my tribe, is doing a a, a, a tremendous job of picking those windows and running with them and doing really good work with it. And so mm-hmm. that, that means going to our ceremonial areas and putting fire in the landscape, um, going around <clears throat> in our different culturally sensitive and significant areas, putting fire in the landscape, as well as uh, being opportunistic with other 
wildfires during the summer. Maybe we maybe we take advantage of this really good low intensity burn that has unfortunately has happened. But you know we kind of have to. We, we this is what we've been dealt, you know. And so I think there's a lot of different cultural practitioners who are able to insert themselves into different opportunities um, with the given scenarios and take advantage of how we can take care of our landscape for for less devastation and, and catastrophic, uh, uh, um, you know, impacts. Got it. Got it. And in order to do these cultural burns, uh, do you have to get permits from the U.S. Forest Service? How does it work? <clears throat> yeah, I can't speak too much to that. Hopefully I get into that portion in, in uh, uh, later parts of my career. Um, but it definitely takes approval depending on the landscape in which we're put, trying to put fire, right? So we have a lot of, so we have sovereignty over our land trust areas or some of our ceremonial areas. And so it's really just up to us of, um, we're taking responsibility of this fire, right? And so kind of uh, being smart with it. But if we're trying to, to put fire elsewhere, whereas 95% of the U.S. Forest Service manages our ancestral territory, uh, there's a lot of collaboration that is necessary. There's a lot of fire managers and, and leadership on the Forest Service side that needs approval. And so I kind of kind of tying back into that co-stewardship, that co-management you know, is significant. And so I think it's uh, even it, in that consideration, it's even more important of how uh you know, constructive and positive relationships, how important those are moving forward when it comes to putting more indigenous leadership and management in, into the landscape. Got it. Got it. Um, as a wildland firefighter, I mean, you work for the U.S. Forest Service and you've been involved in uh, prescribed burns in Oregon and California. Um, can you just kind of take us through what a uh, cultural burn looks like you know what exactly you do and and uh is it you know do you have to light it in, under certain conditions only like what are the security mm -hmm. measures yeah yeah i think in, in today's society as i mentioned that safety is the most important component of putting fire back on the landscape given that there are instances where it was intentional fire, which then became unintentional, right? Really, de true devastation is, is 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 there, and I think it's it's going even more intense as climate change and the different events that are continuing on. Um, and so, safety is a huge component. And with safety, in order to maintain that strategy, is huge. And so, you know, just especially with the, the experience in which the area or for other fire managers have, you know, there's different significant approaches to it, right? Given the weather conditions. And so um, there's, there's a such thing as called a prescription, meaning that there's, there's given parameters or criteria that the weather as well as the, you know, consumption and fuels that, that they have that is dependent on the success and the, uh, yes or no approval of putting fire in the landscape. And so sometimes that means it really depends on what landscape you're going to be on, right? Is it mm -hmm. steep terrain? Is it flat terrain? Is it kind of closer to the summer? Is it little, is it in the fall time? Right. And so um, are you going to do burnt, are you going to burn piles? Are you going to do broadcast burning? You know, all these different elements are significant to what you got going on. Right. So again, it's not as easy or as simple as putting just putting fire in the landscape with given conditions, if, if it's pertained, there's a lot of, uh, you know, safety precautions that are necessary in order to, again, uh, 
to achieve the goals in which you want. And I think that everybody can say that threatening a community is not one of those goals. And, mm-hmm. and so given the conditions, uh, you know, in my mind of when I think of good fire is that it's a low intensity. Uh, if it's on a slope, it's backing down. Um, you have many resources that are able to be there to attend any uh, issues, any slops, any spotting, um, those kind of components. And then overall, you, you have large old growth species that are able to, uh, that are historically dependent on fire to, to really thrive in those conditions and, and seeing them flourish afterwards. Hmm. Um, and so even my, my even the need to emphasize on the post-fire stuff, right? Is there is the consumption, is there a lot of fuel in those areas? Are those going to be fire prone in the future? Are they going to be resilient in the future, right? And so I think that um, it really, it depends on everything. Again, I'm going to say this again when it comes to fires, it really depends. But I can, you know, I have this dream of what a good fire adaptive uh, ecosystem looks like. Um, and and I'm, I'm thankful to live in an area in which we're starting to get more of those, those fire resilient ecosystems. Mm-hmm. And when you're doing these uh, uh, prescribed burns uh, or cultural burns, uh, it's multiple firefighters together um, in an area that's somewhat contained. Right. Right. So there's a lot of preparation that goes into it, right? There's, Mm -hmm. you have, you most of the time dig a line, you put fire hoses around, you have water uh, uh, ready and able, um, but it's not always firefighters. That's the cool thing is that you get, community members who just volunteer their time, uh, they understand the significance and the importance of putting good fire in the landscape. And so in these rather non-fire suppression projects, you get a lot of community members who come out and, and really contribute. And I think, again, that's a form of healing. It's a form of ceremony when we're kind of being, or when we're having that positive relationship with fire. And so it's reestablishing, it's really decolonizing the, the events that have occurred in the past and continue to occur in the future. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and yeah, so and a good uh, emphasis on the resources, the help that is necessary. It's not just a couple people going through and putting on fire landscape. Right now you have a given prescription that you have to stay in and you have, you know, a lot of resources and help in order to, you know, maintain those objectives and goals. Yeah. Yeah. Um, in you know, many of our uh, listeners, I'm sure, have noticed that our wildfire seasons have become longer. Fires yeah. are more intense. There's more acres burned. There's more extreme fire behavior, and you know, fires creeping up to our towns and cities, and uh, nasty smoke uh, for many, many weeks. Uh, we've had that in the past uh, few years, and alongside, uh, you know, we've seen uh, these massive uh, efforts at fighting fires, where the U.S. Forest Service has really thrown uh, a ton of resources. Uh, you know firefighters, uh, tankers, heavy machinery, uh, massive amounts of fire retardant uh, coating the landscape, uh, and also uh, thinning and cutting old trees uh, to stop fires. And at the same time, the U.S. Forest Service has also been talking about these prescribed burns, which are, you know, sort of a facet of what your cultural burn practices are. Uh, Are those two things... uh, you know, are those approaches sort of counter 
productive or you know on one hand sort of these all these resources and heavy machines and chemicals onto the fire on the other hand sort of talking about prescribed burns like can both be done or should the u.s forest service be uh, moving more towards uh using fire as opposed to fighting fire Absolutely. In short, absolutely, they should. Um, I th- but I think I also want to know, especially given being a little, getting a little insight of being a Forest Service employee and what mm-hmm. that really looks like, um, it's not as clear cut and dry. I think a lot of fire managers, especially wildland firefighters, can all agree that putting proactive management practices are a lot better whether it's livelihood, whether it's health-wise, physically, mentally, whatever it might have it, it's the ulti- it's a better situation, right? But given that public perception of what kind of fire is being put on landscape is a little bit gray, right? And so that's one of the things that us as folks who try to really put fire in the landscape, whether it's close to, to the cities or communities or it's in rural areas, is that public perception has a huge influence on what we can and cannot do, right? And so I think that that simple point of education of, of fire is key, right? The differentiation, the fire behavior, the history, whatever it might be, getting a little bit of education in which can help influence your peers or, or your community members is going to be key for us fire managers to be able to implement proactive management, right? And so one of the one of the examples I'll provide is that we go through a whole summer of smoke, right? Given that those are really harsh conditions for for people with uh, you know prior existing health conditions have to mm-hmm. endure. Absolutely understand that. <clears throat> one of the, but also when you want to come in and create more smoke uh, during the times in which people really depend on to get clear out, you know, healthier air. Right. And so this, this public perception on smoke is one of the driver influences of when you can or cannot have a proactive fire or prescribe or cultural fire. And so the difference for me that I was always claimed um, is that there's a difference in smoke, even though it has the same impact is that one smoke is being proactive the other one is colonial, catastrophic with devastation impacts. And so for me, in simple terms, there's colonial smoke and then there's tribal community trust smoke. One is going to actually help prevent the, the, the amount of smoke in the future. Right. The other one is going to continue to raise havoc. And, and so one of those differentiations, like, all right, well, should we take a little bit more, a couple days to, to deal with smoke? So this landscape over here is a little bit more fire resistant, a little bit more fire resilient, right? And so that's one of the huge issues is the public perception is key, right? And that gives a sense of responsibility to fire managers to connect with the public, to connect with the communities, because it's important for them to understand what's going on around them, right? Given the circumstances, I don't blame anyone for being hypersensitive or aware of what's going on because of the extremes in which they've experienced or they might experience in the future. Um, and so again, back to kind of your actual question is that there is a, a huge push in putting prescribed fire back in the landscape from higher up, but then there's that workforce issue, kind of the component of what my organization really emphasizes is younger generations being involved in fire. And so 
we're the young ones are not only going to be the leaders in the future, but we're the ones that are going to have to carry on a lot of the workforce and labor that are necessary to reduce fuels, to put fire in landscape, whatever you might want to kind of talk about. And so there's a huge emphasis on my part, as well as other climate activists who are my generation, to understand of what is it, why do we need to why do we need to focus on this, right? And so my call out is for for younger generations to to kind of get that little curiosity of where we where we kind of have a place in this issues, but also the the older generational leadership understanding of where they can meet us, right? When are we going to get the compensation that is necessary? When are we going to get the inclusion and seat at the table that influence decision making? You know, and I guess that's a huge indigenous characteristic and value is intergenerational transfer of knowledge. Mm. How are we going to be able to be ready for for leadership positions in the future when we're not having to see that at the table we're not being included or have avenues in which we can kind of partake in these issues whether it's climate broadly or it's wildfires broadly and mm -hmm. so that's kind of one of the huge components in which i really believe indigenous and leadership and management can really include is the intergenerational transfer of knowledge and really producing the next leaders of, of the futures and prov pro providing for next generations to come yeah, yeah. So being part of this uh, Northwest Forest Plan Committee uh, is kind of a step in that direction. And, and also the organization that you founded, um, which supports uh, young firefighters and fire community members. Exactly. Uh, yeah, that sounds like really exactly. important. What um, you mentioned uh, people's perception of uh, prescribed burns. Uh, what are other uh, um, barriers to instituting these uh, practices on a wider scale. So Ryan, you mentioned uh, uh, the perception that people have uh, about fires and how that uh, influences our ability to have prescribed burns. Right. Um, what are some other barriers that prevent uh, prescribed burns and cultural burns from happening on a wider scale? Absolutely. Policies, for sure. Um, you know, there's a lot of higher up pressure and I mean higher up as leadership, the hierarchy of things, to, to provide pressure on us folks who are on the landscape doing the work to produce an X amount of acreage or uh, X amount of objectives, right? And so mm -hmm. there's there's that huge tension. And so the, what happens is that there's no, there's little to no understanding of what it takes to to execute these objectives right and so a lot of, like as mentioned before a lot of it's the workforce retention issues um the forest service has heavily felt that especially in fire suppression efforts uh, but also the, the lack of compensation and, and the conditions in which uh us firefighters have to endure and that's just a seasonal that's just during the summers right and so there's a huge issue with you know your your workforce generally right mm -hmm. and I think you, you mean uh, uh, firefighters leaving the ranks leaving yeah leaving fire entirely or uh not be able to move up because of the limitations they got and you know and i guess at the end of it it's that that personal issue of that you got to take care of your family at the end of the day you got to right. you got to worry about your relationships you got to worry about your health and well-being in the future um and so that is a huge component of <clears throat> why we can't get too much more fire in the landscape is because we just don't have the workforce and capacity to do it. And right. I think that's why I'm so significant. I'm so uh, happy to see 
where the community I come from is that you have a lot of community members who are interested, who are willing to dedicate their time and eat a lot of smoke in order to, to create a more fire resilient community. Mm -hmm. Um, that's a critical one. And then also the different pressures that is reactive of these different catastrophic wildfires in different locations of the, the West or, or even essentially the country is that when a large fire kind of comes through they have to react to these these issues the devastation that happens and so that means that there's a limitation there's a restriction which in which enables prescribed and good proactive fire to be established and so in other words one of the solutions for me in which i've perceived is that ecosystems need to be managed as ecosystems they don't need to be managed as states they don't need to be managed as regions right each given area has been historically managed differently. And so if we're having back to the blanket management strategy is that it's not it's not adequate. It's not enables it doesn't enable uh, folks to be able to take care of the landscape and cater to the needs of the landscape when we have policies that restrict certain areas uh, because another given area that's a whole different climate, whole different uh, that contains whole different fire behaviors. You know, and so, and essentially is that that's where indigenous leadership and management comes in is that they're very catered to a given landscape with specific needs and understanding of what fire behavior means, right? And so, um, you know, I guess there needs to be strategies implemented that pertain to Southern California rather than Northern California or Oregon to, to mid California or rural versus urban, right? And so all these, there's, there's different strategies in which need to be um, emphasized rearticulated and understood not only by the managers and the leadership, but also the, the rest of the community. And I think that there needs to be a little bit more risk um, that needs to be established in order to get into a safety and fire resilient stage. And it's unfortunate, right? It, it's kind of like, it's, it's really unfortunate, but I think it's, you know, we're going to be experiencing these really large mega fires um, if we don't take a dramatic step. Mm-hmm. Um, and this brings me to a uh, kind of a local question to the Portland area, which is that we have a fire right now burning in the Bull Run watershed. Um, it's very much on the minds of everybody who lives in the Portland area because it's our primary uh, source of water for the region. Um, and I recently wrote a story about how the Bull Run has had no prescribed burns uh, as a way to prevent larger fires. And the reasoning uh, I was told is that uh, there's a certain type of forest ecology in the Bull Run, a, a type of rainforest that doesn't necessarily lend itself to prescribed fires. So I, I'm wondering if you briefly can talk about whether there's certain types of forests where prescribed burning is uh, better suited to them. Uh, and also, is that changing in the era of of climate change yeah that's that's a great question and i think that's a, a important one to emphasize is we have a broad um, spectrum of people who are listening right now with different given climates and areas and so especially there's a huge emphasis within the northwest forest plan is that we have climates of different ranges some that are fire dependent some that aren't and i think that is a huge characteristic um, but again with climate change we're starting to experience fire in areas in which we've never can never really had them before right and so that that sense of flexibility that sense of adjusting and adapting to our climate is even more key right so that means that there are areas in which weren't historically fire 
dependent, maybe that's changing, right? Mm -hmm. Given extreme climate change impacts. Um, And I would say that I can't speak too much to the the forest, like the Bull Run um, area. But what I can say is that who are the indigenous people there? Who, who might know the answer to, or, or solutions to those given areas, right? <clears throat> and I think that's the importance of collaborating or taking the back seat and letting leaders, indigenous communities take initiative because they've been there since time of memorial. <clears throat> mm-hmm. And each area will, will say that. And, and I, think that, I think that's the thing that we're learning is that there's a lot of stories, a lot of oral traditions in which really pertain specifically to forest management. And I think th- those were going to get your answers. And I think that it's important to know that I guarantee that's not the first issue of climate change or changing ecosystems in which they've had endure or what we've had endure. endure. Um, and so I'll, I'll kind of leave that to that is like, who, who's the indigenous folks who are from that area and have they been able to have a seat at the table? Mm-hmm. They might hold the answer. Yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah. Um, one last thing that I would like to talk about is the logging of old trees. Um, mm-hmm. So the timber industry, which is very much involved in the uh, update to the Northwest Forest Plan, uh, says that the best way to prevent uh, catastrophic fires is to cut down uh, some trees to reduce the fuels. And uh, Oregon's timber industry has spent really thousands and thousands of dollars on uh, social media ads uh, trying to promote logging to reduce wildfire risk. But science has shown that um, logging actually can make things worse and can make forests more prone to fires, not less. Um, So this idea, you know, it's kind of a, a, you know, timber uh, industry wants to log more, and uh, Forest Service is kind of uh, using thinning as a strategy. Uh, but uh, recently, uh, President Biden has proposed a rule to change uh, how uh, uh, old growth and mature forests are protected. He wants to have more protections. And, and so I'm just wondering if you can talk a little bit about that, you know, how we should protect old trees and why uh, they matter. Right. Absolutely. Um, I think one of the things to emphasize, especially in the conversation of the Northwest Forest Plan area, we have a tremendous biodiversity. And and old growth is one of those characteristics of what biodiversity means. Um, Especially when we're talking about redwoods, when we're talking about cedars, when we're talking about Doug fir even, um, you know, all these different larger trees that they they create ecosystems they create specific conditions when we have a primary old growth forest and and so i think biodiversity is important to note when we're talking about this conversation um and so that kind of ties into the significance uh, or that conversation of what logging when to log when not to log right and as i mentioned before we can't just go and put fire on the landscape anymore like we did in the past um and, and so it becomes, there are opportunities for, for thinning. There are opportunities for um, <clears throat> sustainability efforts that might include logging. Um, now, let's not, let's not get to, it's a slippery slope, right? And so there are folks who are really trying to emphasize or be opportunistic on these conditions. And I think it's important to know that a lot of times, or 
lot of times in my area, which I'm speaking from, Northern California, and including the southern reaches of, of Oregon, is that a lot of these forests are fire dependent. And so if we kind of use fire as a, as, a, as a tool rather than logging, then we're going to get more fire resilient forest. And so kind of just driving that point home is that let, let's reassess the tools in which we have historically have used, right? Whether it's indigenous proactive management of fire or the tools of logging and clear cutting, right? And, and how does that connect to the issues we're talking about and and for me as a as a wildland firefighter when i'm going into in an area with plantations on both sides of me there's clear cuts there but then it's just ultimate density of the forest at the same age growth uh the biodiversity is is limited or zero to none in some components you know that's those are issues those are just a, a matchbox waiting to be lit off mm-hmm. and uh, back to the component of biodiversity Within my area, there's so many different fire-dependent species, but then there's also, you know, species that are a little bit more shy of fire, but that that kind of, that balance is necessary, right? Whether it's in species, whether it's in your lateral fuels and your heights of your trees, the age of your trees, you know, those ecosystems within my area and, and, and increasingly so within the Pacific Northwest are fire resilient. They're more fire resilient than these same age growth trees. And that's one of the characteristics within logging and why it's such an issue ecologically is not only <clears throat> the, the same length and once a fire gets in the crowns that takes off, but also just the biodiversity and the, the degradation on the soils, the other plants, the animals. And so we kind of get into this larger issue that, you know, even though catastrophic wildfires is a large and probably the biggest part within, you know, resilience, but then you have, you know, when we're thinking generations ahead, the diversity is lost and, and that means that the landscapes in which we're talking about will be lost as well. Well, Ryan, I hope the U.S. Forest Service considers uh, some of the issues that you have brought up and uh, has a more holistic uh, look at our landscape, uh, including fire management. Uh, and best of luck in your work on the committee. Uh, it's been a really fascinating conversation. I really appreciate uh, the time you have uh, spent with us. And we'll be following these topics closely in future stories uh, at the, uh, the OregonLive.com and in the Oregonian. And I'll drop a few links uh, to uh, relevant stories in the show notes. Uh, thank you so much for listening to Beat Check with the Oregonian. If you like this show, please give us a five-star rating and review an Apple podcast. It helps other people find the show. Um, best way to support our journalism and stories like this is with a subscription to Oregon Live. You can do that at OregonLive.com slash pod support. Until next time. Thank you.